I'm Brooks, and I get to be the pastor here at Westside. But both uh, Christy and I, we've been here. Coming up this fall, it'll be six years that we've been at Westside. And uh, thanks. Yeah. And uh, it's just a privilege, guys. It's an honor. I'm just, we're just humbled. We just love our church. Um, we just recently had a baby, so we've had our, our fourth child. Um, yes. Christy might be here today with, uh, with the girl. Her name is Noelle. And, um, and so I've been home just being close to, close to home because we have three other boys who are crazy. And, uh, and so, you know, we're just keeping, keeping that rhythm going. But, uh, and, and I've gotten to take uh, some weeks off of preaching. And that's been a, a huge blessing for, for me and for our church. Um, so uh, we've got a guest speaker this morning. Next week, um, I'll be preaching again. We're launching a new sermon series next week. I want you to hear about it. It's the, the, probably the most famous chapter in the Bible is, is a psalm. It's in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 23. And it's probably one that even if you're not familiar with church, you've heard it before. And, uh, and really the main driving metaphor for human beings in the Bible is the metaphor of sheep. Yeah, sheep. Uh, the Bible calls us sheep. And one of the main metaphors for God is that he's a shepherd. In fact, Jesus came and he says, I'm the good shepherd. So there's tons of different sort of like uh, shepherd, sheep sort of passages of scripture. So we're launching a brand new sermon series where we're going to take a real close look at Psalm 23. Excited for that. Uh, but this week, we have a gift. Uh, Joel Gerlach. Come on up, Joel. Um, Joel and Kat have been in our church for, for a while now. Joel and Kat have recently taken over the reins of, of, of our prayer teams and how we pray at our church. And you guys have done a tremendous job doing this prayer 101, prayer 102, helping people learn how to hear God's voice um, is tremendous. And they just bring a lot of experience. And, uh, and Joel, we've, uh, I feel like, I mean, I'm confident saying this. I feel like right. we've become friends. Uh, yeah, is that I would, true? I feel confident in that saying. <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm like, oh, I hope he <laughs> well, considers actually, me a friend. Um, no, I, I honestly, I, I call you a friend, and, uh, and Joel's gotten to speak before, great communicator, and I asked him, hey, would you, would you cover one of those weeks? And he was so excited to do I it. I said, yes. And, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so, would you just give it up for Joel as he preaches to us this morning? Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Whew. Don't worry, you guys. This is my second sermon, so I'm sure it's going to be great. Exits are in the back if you need to leave. I, I won't blame you. Um, so what I want you guys to do is think about Jesus for a moment, okay? So picture Jesus in your mind. Uh, think about his attributes, his characteristics, his nature. When you think about Jesus, does Jesus being funny ever cross your mind? Yes? Okay, well, perfect. So you guys are good. You guys can head out. You got, you got, you got this. The rest of you can uh, stay by. Um, the big thing, the big question I was thinking about is, do I see Jesus as a guy who would A, tell a joke, or B, appreciate it if I told a joke? Right? Sometimes you might feel like, hey, Jesus, I got a joke for you, and you hear nothing, right? That's sometimes some of the things you can feel like when we think about Jesus. Uh, we habitually think of Jesus as mild in manner, endlessly patient, grave in speech, and so serious he borders on being glum. I call this picture Serious Jesus. Take a look at him. There he is. That's serious Jesus right there. I don't, you know, he's got this kind of thing. <clears throat> the evidence for this is that we and many theologians, we try to explain away any inconsistency in this picture of serious Jesus by instead being like, oh, this is not what Jesus said. This is kind of what he meant. Uh, we try to adjust the gospel to fit this image of Jesus where everything he said was 100% serious. In fact, many of the esteemed books that were written on the life of Christ, there's no mention of humor at all. Or if there is, it's only a hint or two. There's often no suggestion 
that Jesus spoke anything other than seriously. Check out this second image. I found this online. I'm so proud of myself. Look at this, right? Come on, people. You know that that isn't what I would do, says Jesus, (laughs) as he looks at you seriously, right? So we use this image of serious Jesus that we've concocted, and we look through all the gospels with Jesus being portrayed in this manner and in this light. And this morning, I kind of want to challenge that. Today, we're going to be talking about the humor of Jesus. Now, in doing some research for this, I found out throughout history that not a lot of people thought Jesus was funny. In fact, when I was trying to figure out how in the world do I build a sermon around this idea, I actually found very few textbooks that had been written or books in general that had been written specifically with only the purpose of convincing us that Jesus was funny. One of these particular books here, it's called The Humor of Christ. This book was written in 1968 by Elton Trueblood, um, and it smells, it smells like it's been around since 1968, I tell you what. And this is one of the most recent books written in its entirety on the humor of Christ. In fact, what I want to show you guys is that this here is Elton Trueblood. Does that look like a guy who would write an entire book on the humor of Jesus, Right? I think this shows that God has a sense of humor. If I was going to write a book about Jesus, I would want to make sure that that was what I looked like when they took my photo, right? So if you hear anything profound this morning, the credit goes to Elton and not me. This is literally, I'm just, his his book is actually incredibly rich and really deep. So that's what I'm preaching on this morning. My prayer isn't that this message this morning is going to try to convince all of you that Jesus was a comedian, right? Rather that Jesus used humor He used irony, paradox, he used witnesses and wittiness, all as a way to speak truth to our hearts. And that's what what we want to find out this morning, is to disarm our presuppositions about Jesus and to realize a little bit more about our Savior in a way we might not have thought about before. My goal is to help you understand ultimately that Jesus is approachable. He's just like us. He's the kind of guy who would tell a joke. And if this is your first Sunday or you're new to the faith, then be excited. This is a perfect opportunity for you to expand your view of Jesus. And for those of you who have known Jesus for a long time, this might just be a reminder that maybe we don't see Jesus in the entirely perfect light. Before we dive in, I want to, tell you, I want to show you guys something. I really debated whether or not I was going to do this, but I wanted to show it to you because this is something that challenged me. When I was looking on Amazon for books about Jesus being funny, I found this thing. It's Dancing with Jesus. It shows up here, right? Now, normally I would think of something like this would be pretty sacrilegious. And honestly, before like a month ago when I was thinking of this, I probably would have never gotten one of these things. It was $8.99 on Amazon for those of you who want to get one. And um, I want to read this back to you. It says, are you cursed with two left feet? Consider this kit your revelation. Included is a three-inch dancing Jesus figurine and an illustrated mini book with a collection of dance moves inspired by the words and deeds of the original Lord of the Dance. Kit also includes an illustrated conga line backdrop to display with your figurine. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I actually told myself that my reward for finishing this sermon and actually preaching in front of you guys was going to be to open this box. And so that's what I'm going to do right now for the very first time. Here we go. This is Dancing with Jesus. Wow. I'm going to set up the illustrated conga line. You know, sometimes in sermons when pastors are trying to fill 30 minutes, they, have, they put in filler material. This is my, look, it's all the disciples in the conga line. (laughs) Now, the reason why I got this is because I I think it's funny. 
but not, I don't want to be sacrilegious and I don't want to misrepresent Jesus. But the reason why I got this and why I think this is so funny, oh, I'm going to put this on my desk at work. The idea is that this kind of breaks me out of the box a little bit of understanding who Jesus is like. Jesus isn't only this, right? But he's a little bit of this. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we do, let's pray because Lord knows I need it. All right. <laughs> Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for uh, just coming this morning. Father, I ask that you would uh, speak through me or in spite of me, Lord. Uh, Father, will you allow my words to be your words and anything you don't want me to say, which let's be honest, is probably going to be a lot of things, will you just hold my tongue, Father, so that I can communicate to your people this morning who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going off my notes because I, uh, I get super excited about this stuff, and if I don't, I'm going to wander. So forgive me if I'm paying more attention to the table than you guys. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is that humor is universal, right? We all laugh. We all joke. Throughout all cultures, although we may not say the same things, laughter is a universal thing like music, right? In every culture around, laughter and jokes and storytelling exists. And one of the main reasons why is that humor transcends languages. So you might be thinking, okay, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, right? The New Testament was written in Greek, and now we read it in English. Surely there has been stuff that has been lost in translation over the years that we miss out on. And that is true. Such wordplay is called paronomasia, and that is where the pun or the classic dad joke falls in. So last week, we had the amazing collection of dad jokes, which I think was so awesome. And I thought about doing more jokes today, but I wanted to be a little bit serious, ironically. Um, and one of the things is that the Old Testament is filled with this paronomasia. But Jesus actually uses a different type of humor than just using wordplay and puns. Christ's humor depends, for the most part, on a combination of ideas and not a combination of words, which is why the particular language, be it Aramaic or Hebrew or English, makes no crucial difference. A good example of this is the idea when Jesus said there was a Pharisee, when he called out to the Pharisees and said, you are like a man who strains out a gnat but swallows a camel. Right? Now imagine this. We've got this Pharisee. He's sitting down enjoying his cup of tea, and he looks down, and he sees a gnat in his cup. So what does he do? He pulls out his strainer and he carefully strains it out, dumps it out so he can enjoy his tea. Then he turns to his camel that is sitting right next to it, lifts it up and then opens his mouth wide and begins to swallow down the camel, right? That idea is universal. It's impossible, right, to swallow a camel. And yet that is what Jesus is saying that this Pharisee was doing. Um, so the next thing is that humor in parables was so simple that a child could understand it. This is why Jesus spoke in parables, but he didn't just speak in parables that were like, wow, that's really deep and meaty. He spoke in parables that actually were funny. The very nature and content of them were humorous. But we, uh, the problem is, is that we've become so familiar with parables, we've become so familiar with their telling, and some of us can even recite them without even thinking about it, that we lose actually the cultural context and why that would be funny. Um, and which is why children, unlike adults, who don't look at a parable and think, oh man, what's the message behind this? Or how can I apply this to my life? Children can take parables at face value and they will often look at a story and notice something about it that we might not. So we're going to look at a, a particular passage here of, through the eyes of, ch of a child. This is Mark 4.21. You'll see it up on the screen. Uh, this famous passage, we all know it. It goes like this. Then Jesus asked them, would anyone light a lamp and then put it under a basket or under a bed? Of course not. A lamp is placed on a stand where its light will shine. Mmm, meaty. 
right? That's good. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Because the message appears to be about the necessity of being a good witness. Let your light shine, as the saying goes. But Jesus was being humorously absurd in this quote. And let's take a quick reason why. Imagine I've got my oil lamp. I've got my whatever I used to light it back in that day. I get a candle going, and now I've got a fire going. What would happen if I took that fire and I put a basket on top of it? Or better yet, what would happen if I put this down underneath my bed? What's going to happen? It's going to catch on fire, right? It's going to, and then if you, put it, if you put an open candle underneath your bed and leave it there for a few minutes, your house is going to burn down, right? Jesus didn't say, hey, I want to take this and put it under a rock or don't take your light and throw it into a stream. He says, don't put your light underneath something flammable, right? And that is, I think that that's really funny because the idea is that our witness is powerful, right? It's like an open flame. And you wouldn't put that open flame under something that gets burned. You put it on top of stuff. So not only can everybody see it, but also everybody recognizes that it's powerful and that it's special. So that's an example of Jesus being like, yeah, don't light your house on fire, right? Put your lamp on top of a stand. The next thing is that humor bypasses our walls and it gets straight to the heart, right? So we tell jokes for the sake of the joke in which the laughter that we receive is the sole justification for the effort that we put into telling a joke, right? To get to the punchline. We want to hear somebody laugh, and that's why we tell a joke. But Jesus is different. He doesn't tell jokes for the sake of laughter. He uses humor to cut straight to the heart, right? There is no recorded words of Christ that did not contain a purposeful revelation of truth, which, would, which otherwise would not have been revealed, so when Christ employed humor and when he employed absurd statements to call attention to what would without it remain hidden, he was doing this so that truth and truth alone could be communicated to us, right? Again, Jesus isn't a stand-up comedian. He used humor to get straight to our hearts. Another reason why, Jesus, why, why we can believe that Jesus used humor is that he was 30 years old when he started his ministry. Now, most of the standard efforts to portray Christ's physical likeness made him seem very mature and sometimes far too, far too old for somebody whose earthly life did not exceed much beyond 30 years. He was, of course, profoundly mature and wise, but was he not 30 years old? Do we not? How, how many of you guys know a 30-year-old who is the pinnacle of stoicism, right? <laughs> yeah, you laugh. I'm almost 30, and you guys can already tell this, that's not me. Um, Jesus was just barely a man by the world's standards. So I don't think it's preposterous to think that Jesus would have come out of his boyhood years not only being able to recognize and tell a joke, but to understand and to laugh, right? And sometimes we miss that when we think about serious Jesus. Finally, before we dive into some more stuff, humor communicates truth in a simple and a rememberable way, right? Humor beats out a long, drawn-out, theologically dense statement. How many of us remember these long, drawn-out, theologically dense statements? Some of us might not even remember the sermon from last week, right? But you know what I remember? I remember those dad jokes because that was awesome. And in the same way, we remember stories and we remember jokes, especially ones that are absurd or some that are, some that are silly or some that have a really good punchline because they sit in our hearts. And that is how God designed us. God designed humor to come down into our hearts and help us remember it. And Jesus giving a long, drawn-out, pithy statement that, that would just be five or six blocks of text would not allow us to remember it in the same way. So Jesus told us these humorous stories through parables. And that's the first thing that we're going to dive into this morning, is looking at how Jesus used parables with humor. 
So the first thing is that in parables, Jesus exaggerated. Like Jesus exaggerated a lot. This isn't just like he did it once or twice. Jesus exaggerated to like bigger than most people will feel comfortable with exaggerating, right? We've all exaggerated before. You've heard the things like, hey, I've told you to clean your room a million times. Or like, oh, I am so hungry. I think I'm going to die if I don't eat right now, right? These are humorous exaggerations. But Jesus didn't exaggerate just for the sake of exaggeration. He did it deliberately to poke fun at the ridiculousness of human nature. He called us out of our vanity, and he rightfully put mankind in its place. But he did this through humorous exaggeration. A good example of this is found in the classic story, The Plank and the Speck. So what, what we're going to do real quick is this, uh, the Matthew 7, 3 through 5 is going to go up on the screen. And I'm going to trust you guys with something. I want you guys to read this out loud, okay? Can I trust you guys to read this out loud without me reading it with you? Let's find out, right? One, two, three, go. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust? You guys are great. Yeah. You guys are good. You guys, this is ridiculous, right? This is silly. Can you imagine somebody walking around like this, being like, hey, yeah, you in the gray shirt. You got something in your eye, bro. Or like coming over here like, yeah, like, yeah, you got a speck in your eye, man. You might want to get that taken care of. When I've got an actual plank in my own eye. This is ridiculous, but sometimes we don't actually see it for what it is. Jesus is saying, you hypocrite, first get this thing out of your own eye, and then take care of your brother's eye, right? And yet, how oftentimes are we doing this when we're calling out people and we're saying, hey, you got to take care of that thing. Well, meanwhile, I've got a two-by-four stuck in my eye, right? That is an example of Jesus using exaggeration to call us to a point, right? Another example of Jesus doing this is in the unforgiving servant, right? The man pleads before the king to forgive $5 billion in debt, $5 billion in debt. But meanwhile, he won't forgive the man who owes him 16000 right? We plead to God to forgive us of our many sins, and yet we won't forgive our mother or our spouse or our children or our friends or whoever. Can you not see the, how, how powerful that exaggeration makes this story? Where I have this huge debt that's so massive I could never pay it off in a thousand lifetimes, and yet I won't forgive the small debt that I owe someone or someone else owes me, right? Jesus draws such a big contrast between these things to help us understand. Jesus used exaggeration because he knows that exaggeration was the best way to illustrate that point. And there are many more examples of exaggeration in parables but alas, I've been going for 14 minutes and 41 seconds, so I've got to keep going on. Thank you, phone, for letting me know that. The next thing is the paradoxes of Christ. Okay, so Jesus spoke a lot in paradoxes. He used them as a way to lean, to combine both the paradoxical and the ironical in order to be able to, again, prove a point. So just for you guys, when I think of paradox, I think about back to the future and the time continuum, but that's not actually what this means. I'm going to put up the definition of uh, paradox here up on the screen. And it says here, paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded and true. 
I love that definition, when investigated or explained. And Jesus draws us in to find out what the paradox is in each of these things. And what, what, is, what about Jesus' statements is, it contains that irony. The first thing that I want to talk about, and this is my favorite part of my sermon, if I'm allowed to have a favorite part, and that is Simon Peter's nickname, right? So we all know about the Apostle Peter, right? He was, he was made famous for being close to Jesus, and yet he royally screwed it up on many, many, many occasions. But let's look at Peter's origin story found in Matthew 4. First of all, Peter's first name and his, his real name was Simon, right? And when Jesus came upon them, Simon was with his brother Andrew, and they were fishing together. Herein comes the first example of Jesus' real humor. He calls to them with that famous line, Come with me, and I will make you fishers of men. We often think of that as a big, deep, weighty statement. Come with me, and I will make you fishers of men. Right? And it's like, yeah, that's awesome. But the reality is when we look at it with fresh eyes and we imagine being these fishermen, seeing this great teacher come towards us, what would, they, what would they have thought the first time that they heard it? Remember thinking about years and years later when Simon Peter looks back on this moment and the first thing that Jesus says to him is to make a play on words about his occupation. I think that's pretty cool. Like, oh, I get it. I'm a fisherman and you want to make me fisher of man. That's awesome. Jesus didn't just be like, come with me. I'm going to show you the way of life and make you be a cool dude or whatever. He said, come and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Right? But what's even funnier about this whole interaction and Jesus' relationship with Peter, Simon Peter, is when he changes Simon's name. We don't think about it this way because Peter is a perfectly good-sounding name in English. So to us, it, take, it sounds more like guy took a guy whose name was Simon, was like, bro, I don't really like your name. I'm going to start calling you Dave. Come on, Dave. Come on with me and let's go do some cool stuff. But the reality was this is not what Jesus called him. The word Jesus used was Cephas, which we see in the Bible. It's the Aramaic word for rock. In Greek translations of the scripture, the word Petros was substituted, which is Petros being the Greek word for rock, and Petros gave us Peter, right, which is a common name. You, you might know people named Peter. But when you look at the name Cephas, and we, get, we get a much more insight into the playfulness of Jesus. He wasn't just calling him by another name. He was literally calling him Rocky. He literally said, I'm calling you Rocky. Because that's what I see in you. Can you imagine Jesus being, hey, Rocky, come on over here. I got something I want to tell you, right? That's the playfulness of Jesus. This is hilarious, but it's also deep. Because in a way, Jesus employed that, that paradoxical irony in the naming of Peter. Because Peter was not a stable and reliable man or a rock-like man. It would be like calling a tall person shorty or calling a large guy toothpick or calling a dumb guy Einstein, right? When Jesus said, hey, your name is Rocky, that wasn't a good example of what they, he should be like, hey, maybe actually you might want to call that guy named Wishy-Washy or something, because I feel like he's a little more wishy-washy than a rock. But Jesus was calling out the true nature of Simon, right? That, that Simon Peter would go from that wishy-washy fisherman into Rocky, like Rocky Balboa, Right? Simon would go on to lead the early church and deliver some major blows to the kingdom of darkness. That's what Jesus saw in Simon. But imagine the smile that Jesus had on his face every time he said, hey, Rocky, come on over here, right? I think that's awesome. Another example is in Matthew chapter 6. This is when Jesus is using irony and paradox. You'll see it up here on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. 
Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Right? Jesus is using this example as he's sitting out in front of the temple looking at all the people going in and out. And he says that the hypocrites blew their trumpets and drew everyone's attention to their giving, to their prayers, and to their fasting. Jesus says they do this so that they may get the praise of men. So we're going to practice this morning. I need to build my ego up a little bit. I'm going to announce something to you guys, and I want you guys to applaud, right? Like, give me a really good cheer. All right, ready? Here we go. One, two, three. I am fasting. That's great. That was a little shorter than I was expecting, but that's fine. I'll take it. That's good. I'll take it. Right? So in this particular instance, I'm announcing something to you guys, and you guys are responding in kind, and it builds me up. But honestly, you guys, as good as you guys are at applauding, that wasn't very much of a reward. <laughs> All of this in this passage is very clear and straightforward, and it's actually not very funny. It's too sad to be funny, right? As we all know and realize that we too do so much to earn the praise of men and not of God. Jesus' proclamation seems to bring this whole discussion to an end like he moved on, except it doesn't. Therein lies the humorous twist. They have their reward, Jesus says. It's almost like Jesus is saying, watch out for what you want. It's like he's saying this with a smile. For you are very likely to get what you want. Those interested in self-advertisement tend to be successful. The tragedy lies in their very success. Do you want status among men? It is not very difficult to achieve, Jesus says. But the only reward that these people will get is that they get what they want, and the twist is that people were admiring them for their misery, right? These guys were proclaiming all the stuff that they were doing to make their religion seem something that they could proclaim, when in reality, they were miserable. And Jesus is humorously calling it out. He's saying, hey, look, these religious teachers, they're getting exactly what they want. But religion, the religion that I'm bringing, the life that I'm bringing to you is not like that. This isn't the sort of thing that I want you to do because your reward is going to be so much better. So we can laugh at these guys who are getting so much praise for men when the reality is they're just being miserable, right? And they're getting applause for doing something that is miserable. So this teasing and this ironical questions Jesus presented to those around him was certain to be more effective than he would have been if he gave a wholly serious and philosophical approach, right? If he sat down and been like, hey, let me tell you all these things. Instead, he uses this twist to say they're getting exactly what they want. The last thing that we do before we, or that I'll talk about before we, we land this plane, is, is this plane on fire, you guys? Are we crashing and burning? No? Okay, good. Nobody's left yet, so... You still can leave if you want, and I'll be fine. I'll be okay. <clears throat> the next thing is the wit, the final thing is the wit of Christ, right? Jesus being witty. We know that Christ was witty. Um, all throughout the text in the Bible, though, it is often sparse when, we get when it comes to showcasing an example of Jesus' wit. 
But there is a particular encounter that stands out in vivid clarity from the rest of the recorded interactions Jesus had with people on earth. This comes in the interaction with the Gentile woman found in Mark 7, 24 through 30. You'll see it up on the screen and I'm going to read it to you. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell down at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews, first. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he says. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. So if we take a good look at this, we realize that Jesus couldn't have been cruel, right? Because everything about Jesus' nature and his mission was to see people as people and not as members of a specific race or gender that he would no longer associate with, right? Yet in essence, he calls this woman a household dog. The Hebrew is rendered as little dog, which certainly, without the context of humor, would be a significant insult to a person who already struggled being at the bottom of the totem pole. By being both a woman and as a Gentile living as a Greek in a foreign land, that's the bottom of the bottom, you guys. So why would Jesus kick her while she's down, right? Yet her response elicits a smile or a sense of wonder in our hearts, and that's why we remember this story. She does not take offense at Jesus for calling her a little dog, but instead she fully embraces his words and she swings right back. She says, yep, I might be a dog, but also dogs don't care what they eat. In fact, they'll eat anything that falls down from the table, as anybody who has a dog can attest to, right? What's wonderful about this context is that both Jesus and this woman share the essential inappropriateness of this conversation. Both of them are speaking to each other in a way that, if we read it literally, would be terribly offensive. But Jesus is playing a bit rough with this woman, which is hard for us to accept when we think of Jesus as being gentle, meek, and kind. If this is all we see Jesus as, then this conversation feels drastically out of place. But instead of becoming a case where Jesus is seen as an insensitive jerk, we get one of the most delightful pictures of our Lord that we possess. Jesus who banters with his kids. He knew just what this woman could take, and he interacts with her on her own turf and gives her an opportunity to come swinging back. Surely Jesus would have laughed when he heard her response. When he says, good answer, can you not see the smile on his face as he knew exactly what she was saying? This is the best case for understanding and accepting the wit of Jesus, that he responded in kind to the wit of another. Another good example of the wit of Jesus comes actually from my own personal experience and my own testimony. So those of you know, as Brooks mentioned, we lead the Listening Prayer 101 group, and listening prayer is basically where we ask Jesus questions, and then we wait and expect an answer, right? And we're practicing that muscle of hearing God and hearing his voice. So one of my favorite questions in the Prayer 101 class, which which of you guys come to the Prayer 101, you'll ask this question yourselves, and that is, Jesus, if you and I were to play a game together, what game would we play right now and why, right? Now, the the very first time I went through this, back when I was a listening prayer little baby, 
I, uh, I, I, I was thinking when I asked this question, I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be stratego. This is gonna be like risk, chess, command and conquer, something that's gonna be awesome and manly and cool. And you know what? I got a vivid imagery from the God of the universe. And you know what it was? Guys, it was shoots and ladders. I kid you not, I heard clear as day, shoots and ladders. And I was like, what? This is what you pick? Of all the games in the cosmos, you pick shoots and ladders for me and you to play right now? What the heck, God, this is dumb. And you know what? God, right on the follow-up of this board imagery, he said one of the most profound things I've ever heard from God. And he said, sometimes in life, you get to the point where you, get, where you hit a ladder and you get to go all the way up. And sometimes you hit a point in life when you hit a slide and you go sliding down. But you know what? The only way to lose the game is to stop playing. The best way to win this game is just keep going. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to keep going, right? God took a silly kid's game and he turned it into a meaningful illustration of perseverance. He picked something admittedly hilarious that I would never expect like shoots and ladders and he flipped it on its head. That is the wittiness and the playfulness of our God. All right, I'm going to bring, bring this plane in for landing now in this conclusion. And that is that Jesus is approachable. He's just like us. And he loves interacting with us in the same way that we interact with others. We know through scriptures that the joy of Christ is our strength. Jesus approached his parables and his stories with a wink and a smile. Even more so because of the deep meaning behind them. So we can do the same. It is not surprising that Christians should be the first to laugh despite all of the difficult things going on in our lives. I don't know what you're going on, what's going on in your lives right now, but take heart in the reality that our Savior Jesus is so, so, so approachable. He laughed, he cried, he made jokes and puns, and he called his buddy Rocky, and he told fantastic stories because he knows us. He knows you. I'm going to invite the band to come on up as we close this out. As we prepare for communion, I want to reflect on the knowledge that our Savior isn't serious Jesus, right? He's not the dour-faced Jesus who only is serious. He is someone who laughs and finds joy. G.K. Chesterton wrote in, this, in his book called Orthodoxy, and although I don't completely agree with the final conclusion that he draws here, I think it's still a powerful statement to the fact that God's got some more to show us that we haven't yet seen. I'm going to read this quote to you. G.K. says, The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. Jesus never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any moment, such as the far sight of his native city, Jerusalem. Yet he concealed something. Solemn men and their imperialistic diplomats are proud of restraining their anger. But Jesus never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the steps of the temple and asked men how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or self-imposed isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to reveal to us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. Now, the term mirth is a little bit archaic. We don't often use it in, this, in our modern-day speak. And so I actually had to look up the, defi the definition of mirth 
because in some ways it sounds a little bit bad, right? This is the definition of mirth found on vocabulary.com. Mirth is a formal or literary term meaning fun and enjoyment as shown by laughter. If you and your friends stayed up all night at a sleepover laughing, you might refer to that as a night of mirth. Can you guys imagine having a sleepover party with the God of the universe? I bet you it's gonna have a lot of laughter. I bet you there's gonna be a lot of things to laugh about. So as we approach communion, as we take the body and the blood, think on Jesus with new eyes. Even ask him, Jesus, how have I not seen you as clearly as I should? Recognize that the sacrifice that he made, the great sorrow of the cross, was so that he could laugh with us for all of eternity, playfully poking holes in the silliness of our ways and telling us the best dad jokes in the universe. That's the Jesus we worship this morning.